So again, I see this as a company that's going to grow by 20% per year into 2030. Yet you look at the stock and you look at what it's trading at and here we're at $4.96. I'm looking at it right now on my screen. And the price to book multiple is 0.89. It's trading at 0.9 times its book value. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how are we doing today? Uh, I'm doing good, Aaron. It's stormy here on the West Coast in San Diego, rainy, so that's unusual. But I got 81 degrees on Christmas, like I said, so I'll take that for a little rain here. I think that's like might be the sixth or seventh time I've heard you talk about how warm your Christmas was and making everybody uh, here on the East Coast just a little bit jealous. I'm 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 sorry, man. The, we we pay for it in the sunshine tax, so we pay for it in the sunshine tax. <laughs> well, it's good to hear that you had a little, good Christmas, and uh, I'm looking forward to diving into our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get hyper-growth investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Luke. Let's kick things off by keeping things relevant and timely. The college football championship game was last night, and it wasn't even close. Uh, so we don't need to talk about the game. But, 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 the game was played at SoFi Stadium. And that made me think of your call for SoFi stock to soar in 2023. So I just right. want to revisit that bull thesis once more for our viewers. What should we be looking for in regards to your prediction of a SoFi rally? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about that. Um, yes, the, the football game was, was an absolute disaster. I was, I was pulling for TCU. I'm tired of the SEC dominance, but, uh, <laughs> I down knew that it wasn't going to be a game and it wasn't a game 65 to seven. Um, they, they beat the over under and Georgia, Georgia was the entire reason why. So anyways, um, moving on to SoFi. Uh, yeah, I very much like SoFi stock for 23. We've talked about this before. I loved under $5. Um, so as the CEO, just bought you know like seven million dollars worth of shares, uh, and has been buying all year long. So um, I'm I'm with him. Uh, I think the smart money's piling into the stock. I, why do I like it? Well, with SoFi, we obviously know one of my core beliefs is great products make for great businesses, which make for great stocks in, in the long run. That ultimately, if you make a product that consumers want to use, you're going to sell a lot of it. You're going to figure out a way to turn a profit from selling a lot of that product and your stock price is going to go higher. That's sort of the, the long term thinking here. And that's exactly what you have with SoFi. You have a consumer banking product that is second to none, world class. It takes everything people like about the digital era, everything people in my generation enjoy about the digital era, something on a phone, easy to access, everything is in one place, all in one, convenient, all that stuff. It takes all that education component, I think it's a really underrated component of the SoFi app, and puts it into one you know, finance super app. This is what people the ages of 
And when, when do people start banking these days? 18, 18 to 30, 35 have been looking for for years and years and years. This is exactly what we wanted. We didn't want a Wells Fargo account. We didn't want Bank of America City. We don't want to be snobs with Amex. We wanted a digital first, mobily native consumer finance app where I can handle all my finances. I can budget. I can invest in stocks. I can invest in cryptos. I can get access to use financial, uh, useful financial products. I can refinance loans. I can learn about all different sorts of finance 101 stuff that colleges don't teach you and high schools don't teach you. It's all in one place. It's a great, great, great product. And because they don't have a physical presence, they don't have to carry the cost of operating physical presence, and that allows them to pass on cost savings to consumers through better yields, better interest, all that stuff. It's just a fabulous product. Fabulous products attract a ton of users over time. Lots of users just continue to flood into those products, into those platforms. So that situation I see with SoFi, I see a young, promising fintech application that is in the early stages of adding millions of users every single year for the next five, seven, ten years. This is a hyper growth story. I think SoFi can get to the size of a large regional bank. That's about 20 to 25 million users. That means they have a ton of growth, a ton of growth ahead of them into 2030. So again, I see this as a company that's going to grow by 20% per year into 2030. Yet you look at the stock and you look at what it's trading at and here we're at $4.96. I'm looking at it right now on my screen. And the price to book multiple is 0.89. It's trading at 0.9 times its book value. Wells Fargo and Bank of America trade at one times book value. They're growing at 2% a year. So you have traditional banking giants growing at 2% a year, trading at a larger book multiple than SoFi, growing at 50% per year. That doesn't make any sense. And the only reason it happened is because of the massive risk-off sentiment we got in 2022. As soon as that risk-off sentiment abates, and it always does, that's what markets do. They go risk-on, risk-off, risk-on, risk-off. It's all a cycle. It's all part of the game. So risk-off is followed by risk-on. That's what happens. As soon as risk-off abates and risk-on comes back into the fold, SoFi stock is the exact type of stock that it went from 20 to 5, can go from 5 right back to 20 in a hurry and then continue to compound at that rate for several years thereafter. Again, I think this is a 50, 60, 70, $80 stock within five years. So I think buying it here, I mean, you got to have patience. You got to think long-term. You can't just say, you know, in and out. That's not how you're going to invest with SoFi. You buy it here because you think it can be the future of finance and you think it can be a super app, a finance super app of 20 million users one day. If you believe that, it's a $50 stock one day. So buying it here below five, Makes a lot of sense. That's why the CEO is loading up. That's why I'm pounding on the table. That's why pretty much everybody's got a buy rating on Wall Street on the stock. Long-term potential is there. Just got to have patience. Wait for the risk on sentiments to return. And they will. When they do, this stock is going to be one of the market's biggest winners. You you talk a lot about how SoFi offers the one-stop shop and it's the appeal is really to uh, people who are getting into banking for the first time and the ease of use do you for, and the educational aspect, the loan aspect, all the all in one. Do you foresee mm. uh, the traditional banks, like you mentioned, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, transitioning into that model as well down the line to meet that standard? Yeah, I think they will try. But here's two things: is one, they cater to a different customer. 
Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, they're not chasing 20-something. I mean, they are chasing 20-somethings, but that's not their core audience because they're still dealing with 40-somethings and 50-somethings and 60-somethings and 70-somethings and even 80 and 90-somethings. That's where they make most of their money. That's their bread and butter. So they can't really dedicate too many resources to chasing the 20-somethings, building some of the 20-somethings would want because what they want is fundamentally different than what you know the 40 to 80-year-old crowd wants. It's just fundamentally different. That crowd grew up in a different generation, likes physical presence more, sometimes likes to meet and talk with a banker. You know, that they have different wants, desires, and demands than the 20s and 30s crowd. So they have to cater to their bread and butter. And they can't dedicate too many resources to building something for the 20-something. So I think that's going to stop them from building something as good as SoFi. And then two, you got to have good people to build good tech. And SoFi is a tech company first, a banking company second. All of those banks are bank companies first, tech companies second. We've talked about this before. If you're graduating and you want to work in the financial tech industry and that overlap, you're a programmer, are you going to go work for Wells Fargo and Bank of America or are you going to go work for SoFi? You're going to go work for SoFi because they're growing. They're much more exciting. They have a tech-first culture. They're trying to disrupt things. That attracts more forward-thinking, ambitious people than you know what Wells Fargo and Bank of America and Goldman Sachs can offer you. And actually, this is a huge problem. I know Goldman Sachs. I have, I have a cousin that's, that's pretty high up there. A big problem they faced out of the 2010s was that they were losing all the tech talent. Goldman Sachs was trying to become a tech company, but people coming out of Stanford, Caltech, MIT, Harvard, they were saying, no, Wall Street, hello, Silicon Valley. And that, that was a huge problem for, for big banks. Big banks are trying to reorient themselves to attract more talent, but it's still a struggle. And I think SoFi, at the end of the day, will continue to win better and more talent than, than the big banks that will allow them to build better products and better tech than what the big banks put out. So for those two reasons, I think SoFi actually has a pretty big and wide competitive advantage over um, you know incumbent banking giants like Wells Fargo and Bank of America, so to speak. And actually, a third advantage I didn't even mention, which I actually talked about when I was talking about SoFi, is – those guys have huge physical presences. Wells Fargo, I mean, in my neighborhood alone, I think there's like three Wells Fargo banking locations, little branches, you know, like those cost money. They have rents, they have salaries. You have to pay the people that work there. You got to safeguard them with security, right? So there are costs associated with that. SoFi doesn't have that presence. They don't have those costs. They will forever be a lower cost business than Wells Fargo and Bank of America until Wells Fargo and Bank of America decide to close shop on their physical presences, which again, they can't do until that 40 to 80 something crowd dies out, which is a long time away. So I think for the next five to 10 years, SoFi has guaranteed itself significant competitive advantages over peers, which gives it visibility to, again, becoming a 20 million, 25 million user platform. And if you just do the numbers on that, you know, assuming that number of users, 25, 20, 25 million, uses the number of products that they currently use, which is around two to three products per user, and they make the same revenue per product as they were using today. You just do the numbers on that, you put some margins on that, boom, this is very easily a $50 stock, like you say, uh, within five to seven years. So um, I think that the competitive advantages SoFi has enable it uh, to, or give it high visibility to becoming a powerhouse one day and the stock becoming a really, really big winner in the long run. I have, I have despite it only being $5, less than $5, <laughs> most people think high risk, high reward at that rate. I have high conviction in mm. SoFi stock. This is not a company that should be trading for less than $5 on the stock price. They, it's just not. It is a very strong company. 
it should not be trading under five dollars. And the fact that it is tells you how wacky and risk off the market is right now. And that as soon as things kind of normalize a bit, man, this one's off to the rocket ship. So that's that's how I feel about it. So you talked about the competitive advantage that SoFi has over traditional banking. Does it have a competitive advantage up of up and comers who are trying to piggyback off the model that they're being successful at right now? Right. So that, that would be size and resources. I mean, they're already very large. They already have millions of users using millions of products. So they're already very large. They have banking licenses. So that's a huge advantage over up and comers. And they have massive resources on the balance sheet. I mean, they have billions on the balance sheet. They have billions in assets. They are just much more well capitalized and well resourced, well funded to take on these challenges, to take on the big banks and anybody else. So they're kind of in like that sweet middle ground. Like they're not big enough as well as Fargo and um, Bank of America to impede their their pace of progress, but they're not small enough to where they need additional help and funding and resources to make their dream come true. They're right in that sweet middle ground, and that's where I like to invest. So, I again, I have very high conviction in SoFi stock, very high conviction. All right. Well, also staying in the news cycle, I know that – you're bullish on space exploration and commercialization and space commercialization and think that the space economy represents a multi-trillion dollar economic opportunity. But you've also said that this stuff is actual literal rocket science. So that pathway towards a trillion bucks, it's going to be choppy. We saw some of that choppiness yesterday when Virgin Orbit's mid-air rocket launch attempt went awry. Can you discuss a little bit about what happened there? And more importantly, do rocket launch failures like these deter your bullishness on space stocks? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, let's talk about Virgin Orbit first. So Virgin Orbit is yeah, – they are a rocket launch company, but they're a very unique rocket launch company. Um, they do mid-air, in-air launches. Um, you know, Normally, you think about a rocket launch, just imagine it, right? You go to a – rocket launch pad there's this giant rocket there on the ground and boom the thrusters ignite and up into the sky the rocket goes right that's what we normally think of as as rocket launches that's how rocket launches have been done forever and ever and ever and ever um but what virgin orbit is trying to do is kind of rethink the game and they are taking a basically a, a boeing 747 they're retrofitting it so you have this plane and you put some rockets on it, some small rockets on on this uh, Boeing 747. And the Boeing 747 takes off, flies up to about 35,000 feet. And at 35,000 feet, the rocket drops off the plane and then it launches. And it launches in the middle of the air. So this is called a mid-air launch. And you know why would Virgin Orbit go through the trouble of doing that? Well, there's a couple of reasons why. And the biggest is actually power usage that um, – the atmosphere of the Earth is is denser, closer to the Earth. That the density is is close. The closer you are to the Earth, the denser the atmosphere is. The farther you away you are from the Earth, the the less dense the atmosphere is. So that's why when when rocket failures usually happen is when they are just getting started, because that's when the most power is required to to take off. To have a successful takeoff, is you need the most power closest to the Earth because that's where the atmosphere is densest. So. Virgin Orbit is saying, well, let, let's just skip that that power requirement by skipping the first 35,000 feet of the atmosphere. And if we go up 35,000 feet, we lose a lot of atmospheric density. So when we drop that rocket and it launches in the middle of the air, we don't need as much power for it to be successfully launched into orbit. 
So that's pretty much the big reason. Other reasons include weather, right? Have you seen, you know, a lot of, if you follow the space industry, you know that a lot of rocket launches get delayed because of weather and all the windows are very specific because of weather. If you go above the clouds, you don't need to worry about weather. Um, so th there's, there's a couple reasons uh, that they're doing it. It should also be theoretically a lower cost way because you don't need as much power too. So um, there's a couple reasons Virgin Orbit is doing it. But anyways, it's a novel technique to launching rockets and it hasn't really been proven um, to work yet. The theory is there, but it hasn't really been proven in, in real life. And Virgin Orbit is trying to prove it. And yes, yesterday's uh, rocket launch that they tried here, they, they, it's called Cosmic Girl. They flew up their Boeing 747 plane 35,000 feet up, and it, it didn't make it into orbit, the rocket that, that released. So um, it was a failure. And failures are part of the business here. That when you have a rocket launches, you're dealing with rocket science and you need to be precise and perfect on, on everything. And even a point oh 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 one percent error can cause a hundred percent failure. So the smallest error can have the biggest um, negative feedback. Because at the end of the day, we judge it it's binary, right? It either makes it to orbit or it doesn't. Uh, and if it's a one, it makes it. If it's a zero, it doesn't. It gets to a zero even if there's a zero point zero 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 one percent error. So you need to be a hundred percent right to have a positive binary outcome from rocket launches. And so that's why you got to give these things wiggle room. I'm not saying Virgin Orbit is a great company. I think it's a novel technique. Um, I want to see that technique get proven before I get really excited about it. But as far as does this deter my bullishness in space stocks, not at all. Again, for the reason that there are a lot of companies in the space. They're going to do a lot of rocket launches. There are going to be a lot of successes and a lot of failures. That's just how the industry is going to play out over the next several years. So if you want to invest in the space, to me, the way I look at it is, okay, there are two sets of companies in the space economy, ones that have made it into orbit and ones that haven't. Again, binary, one or zero. The ones that have made it into orbit are the ones you want to consider. The ones that haven't, I'm not saying you don't want to consider them, but you want to wait for them to make it into orbit and get into this basket, and then you can judge them and consider buying them as a stock. That's how I look at things. And that's why when you look at so SpaceX, right, they just got, I think, $137 billion valuation. That was a week before Virgin Orbit's flub. I don't think those VC investors that put, you know, I think it was 150 million, now some major number into SpaceX at 137 valuation are regretting putting that money in because Virgin Orbit had a flub. Virgin mm -hmm. Orbit's flub has nothing to do with SpaceX. SpaceX has successfully reached space dozens and dozens of times. They've launched hundreds of satellites up there. They're doing fine. They're great. They're the bedrock <clears throat> of the space economy. So SpaceX, Rocket Lab, you know, these are companies over here in this basket of companies that have successfully launched into orbit, launched satellites or operational that I think are the cream of the crop, the creme de la creme of the space economy. Those are the space stocks you want to buy today. That's a very small group right now. That group will broaden out and become bigger over time as more companies successfully launch into space. But for right now, it's a very small subset of stocks that you want to consider buying if you're bullish on the space economy. Those that have made it into orbit successfully and preferably have done it multiple times with, on a consistent basis. So as that uh, binary, as you're talking about, that group that have made into space, as that does grow, what are you looking for in that group that's going to be the next big thing? Uh, you mean how do I – so once how, a company has made it into group number once, two – Once those companies make it in there, then how do you sort through all those companies to determine what's the best right. play? 
Right, right, right. So, that, I mean, therein, there, there's a huge range of how successful you've been with the launches, right? Have you had one successful launch? Have you had two successful launches? Or have you had a hundred successful launches? Have you launched small satellites up there? Have you launched big satellites up there? What are your satellites doing? Are they just taking pictures or are they actually being used to provide internet to the world? Um, there are, there's a huge range of companies in that second group. And what you want to do is you want to find the companies that are one, have had, again, multiple successful launches, have a preferably a unique technology to launch those rockets or a unique make of their rockets, which gives them some cost advantage or some time advantage, maybe a reusability advantage. And three, you want to find the ones that have the right partnerships so that when they do launch these satellites, they're launching satellites that have high value ads and big applications to the global economy because if those partnerships are big name big time big league stuff then that you know means they're probably going to sign some more big time big name big league partners for more satellite launches in the future so that's how i kind of segment that group of stocks and because i know you're probably gonna ask the question so i'm already gonna you know answer it for you <laughs> can't really go into what those stocks are again like i said it's a very small group Mm. A couple of the stocks in there, one of them in particular is one of my highest conviction. Two of them in particular are two of my highest conviction stock picks that are reserved for members of my ultimate research service that they pay thousands of dollars for that. So I can't really go into which stocks I'm talking about. What I can say is that there are two groups of stocks in the space economy, those that have made it into orbit and those that haven't. And you want to look at the group that has made it. And in that group, you want to find the ones that have some unique technology, a history of repeated success and big partnerships that uh, with companies that are doing some major value add applications in the in space today. If it checks those three boxes, then it's probably a really, really, really good space stock to buy. And there are some of those in the market right now. So without giving away those picks, I'm not going to ask you for, to tell me what those, those picks are. Uh, 10 years down the line, where do you see the space economy as a technology actually giving something back to everybody else, everybody down here on planet Earth. What does right, that technology so think, look like? What does the space economy look like 10 years down the road? I think probably the, the most tangible thing that we're going to feel on Earth, you know, you and me sitting in sitting our homes is internet connectivity. That I think this idea that we can now put satellites up into space, are you going to beam internet everywhere on Earth all at once uh, is a very powerful idea. Whether that is Wi-Fi, whether that is cell connectivity, they're probably going to be both. But I think within by 2030, because of space exploration and commercialization of rock technology and of uh, telecommunications technology, that by 2030, you will there will not be a single place on Earth, even in planes, where your cell phone does not have connectivity, where you don't have Wi-Fi. You will always be connected to something everywhere on Earth. I think that is probably going to be the biggest value add uh, that you and I feel. So on planes, you're going to be able to have, you know, great, tremendous Wi-Fi, great speeds, great cell connectivity, uh, hiking in the mountains. We're going to get that stuff out, you know, camping in the woods. We're going to get that stuff uh, when there's a storm, when there's a natural disaster, when cell towers get hit, when there's an earthquake in, in California or a tsunami in Japan, cities that are affected will still be lights on, so to speak, in terms of cell connectivity in terms of Wi-Fi connectivity in terms of internet connectivity. So that's probably the biggest value application that we're going to feel. And I say it's the biggest because everything is based on internet connectivity. So with satellites, what we're doing is we're essentially backing up and enhancing 
what is a multi-trillion dollar industry. In my opinion, it's a hundred trillion dollar industry. I mean, global GDP is backed by the internet. That's just, that's plain and simple. And mm. what satellites are going to do is they're going to back up, they're going to support and enhance that infrastructure. So they're going to support and enhance, in my opinion, a hundred trillion dollars worth of global domestic product. So that's what I think is going to be the biggest application that you and I see and feel. I think other things we're going to see and feel is, is enhanced weather detection, enhanced weather forecasting, and that's going to really help um, with uh, planting of crops uh, and other things related to weather. I think that's going to be a big thing that, that we feel. Um, I believe it's going to significantly enhance autonomous driving. And a lot of autonomous driving is based on mapping technology. If we have satellites taking dynamic pictures of the Earth at all points in time, that's going to be significant for uh, the advancement of autonomous vehicle technology. So I think it's going to enhance AV technology. But I think a lot of the supporting things of um, supporting features of uh, space and the space economy are going to go towards supporting other industries as opposed to directly impacting um, those mm -hmm. industries. But I think the one big direct impact that I see, again, is ubiquitous internet technology. All right. Um, moving on, another big tech megatrend that we've talked about is something that you call next-gen digital reality or as a whole, the metaverse, VR, AR, XR stuff all put together. Um, I remember last year you told us that the big catalyst you're waiting for to get really bullish, bullish on these stocks is the launch of Apple's VR headset. Well, I yep. just read that the Apple VR headset is coming this year. So is it time to load up on VR and metaverse stocks? Yeah, I mean, so the, the big thesis there, Aaron, is it has to go back to the internet, really. And what Apple's done there. Um, when did the internet really become a ubiquity? When did everybody really start using the internet and being connected all the time? You know, it, it wasn't the advent of the computer. It wasn't the advent of – think about the 2000s. We had mm -hmm. computers. Yep. But – Technology, internet, it wasn't really ubiquitous. Like it was something we used maybe at work, maybe at school, and that was about it. It was, it was almost like a nine-to-five tool. The internet didn't become a ubiquity until the iPhone mm -hmm. because Apple put the internet in the palm of your hands. Yep. And, and Apple made a device – that made the access to the internet so convenient that and affordable that everybody could have it. And we realized, okay, once you put the internet in our hands, oh, I can use the internet for more than just my nine to five. I can mm -hmm. use it to check the news. I can use it to communicate with friends. I can use mm -hmm. it to post pictures, share pictures, share videos. I can use it to consume media and entertainment. I can use it to listen to music. I can do all these different things where it's like, oh my goodness, Boom. We all realized the mind-blowing benefits of the internet 24-7. That was because Apple made a hardware device that fit in the palm of your hand. They put the internet in your hand. So to me, the internet revolution really got started in 2007 when Apple launched the first iPhone. I think Apple's going to do the same thing with mixed reality, virtual reality, extended reality, augmented reality, metaverse, whatever you want to call this. Again, like you said, I call it next-gen digital reality. I think they're going to do the same with that. That this VR headset, I believe, and I have no reason not to believe, 
that it's going to be a fantastic device. I mean, this is Apple for crying out loud. The pioneer of the Mac, the pioneer of the iPhone, the pioneer of the iPod, the iPad, the smartwatch. I mean, this is a company that every time they release a nine times out of 10, that they release a new hardware product in a burgeoning industry, it is a massive hit, takes over that industry and makes it mainstream. Smartwatches didn't become mainstream until the Apple smartwatch. Tablets didn't become mainstream until the iPad. Computers, yes, Apple's a little bit later to the game, but that, that, that was a foot race between them and Microsoft, so you could call it them and Microsoft together. But like I said, nine times out of ten, Apple launches a product. It is a great product, and it takes that industry, which was maybe fledging at the time, and pushes it into the mainstream. I don't think this is going to be any different. There is the software technology is out there. It's ready. It's capable to support enhanced VR experiences, enhanced XR experiences, enhanced AR experiences. But the hardware is not there yet. We don't like these bulky headsets. We don't like, you know, stuff with the metaverse branding, the Oculus Quest. I mean, we don't like really expensive things. The current hardware is the great limiting factor of this revolution, in my opinion. Once that hardware gets fixed, and by fixed, I mean it becomes more accessible, more convenient, and cheaper. Once that happens, it will converge with software that's already ready to go and boom. That's the spark that lights the fire for the next-gen digital reality revolution. So that's why I've been saying that the Apple VR headset is going to be kind of the, the, the game-changing catalyst for the industry because I expect that device to be cheaper, more accessible, more convenient, and it will spark what will be – it's not going to be a one-and-done thing. They're going to launch it in 23. There's going to be a 2.0 in 24, 3.0 in 25. Each iteration is going to get better and better and better, like the iPhone, and that's going to create more ubiquity among this hardware device, which means that the next-gen digital reality revolution has become more ubiquitous. And by 2027, 2028, we're all going to have these Apple VR headsets or Apple VR, whatever they're going to be at that time, glasses, whatever they may be, VR monitors. I don't know what they're going to be. Apple's going to figure it out. Whatever it is, we're all going to have one or 80% of us are going to have one, which means 80% of us are going to be plugging in to these VR experiences. So that's why I think hardware is really what we need. I mean, it's the last thing we need, the last hurdle we have to jump over before this stuff has a clear pathway to uh, becoming ubiquitous. And I think, again, we are that catalyst is here in 23 with Apple. I trust no company more than Apple to be the one to do this. And so that's for me, that's why, yeah, Apple launches that headset. I hear it's coming out in 23. I'm like, okay. Uh, I'm looking at VR, metaverse, AR stocks. They're down a lot. They're down 50, 60, 70%. Uh, they're trading in pretty cheap multiple. They're still growing very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's time to, to get on that before the hockey stick. You know, if you talk about the hype cycle of technologies, you have the, the tech trigger, you have the peak expectations, you have the trial of disillusionment, and then you have the, the secular growth pattern. You know, I think we were at peak euphoria, peak expectations with metaverse technologies broadly in 21. We hit the trial of disillusionment in 22, and now we're starting to crest beyond it. And we're mm. going to spike into that secular growth pattern when that VR headset launches. And boom, it's going to be six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years of secular growth for those technologies. So, you know, I think now's pretty good time to buy before it takes that big u-turn so yes i am very bullish on vr ar xr whatever you want to call them next-gen digital reality stocks in 2023 looking at the iphone analogy how the iphone put the internet in the hands of everyday consumers uh changing that nine to five relationship with the internet into a almost 24 7 relationship with the internet what is the appeal of this next-gen digital reality to the consumer that's going to make the, the Apple VR headset this need this device that we all need to have. 
Right. So if you think about, I think communication, um, gaming and uh, productivity or work, I think are going to be very big things. So communication right now we communicate, you know, there's, there's video chats, there's text messages, there's phone calls. I think uh, VR enhanced communication is going to be something we all see a big, maybe not need for, but we're going to think it's really cool and we're going to want to do it. You know, plugging into a world and, and talking with people or, you know, being dropped into your space, you're dropped into my space. It feels like we're hanging out um, with, uh, in work meetings as opposed to just video chatting. You know, some companies have camera on policies. You know, now we can kind of like drop into a, a, a virtual workspace where we can all kind of just pretend like we're there together, get some collaboration from that. So I think next gen communication is going to be a big value add. Gaming obviously is a huge one. I mean, as opposed to just hitting buttons on a controller, being able to, you know, be that first person shooter, be that Jedi in that Star Wars game, be that racer in that racing game, whatever it may be. Obviously, that's really cool and people are going to want to do that. I think that's going to be a huge value add. And I think with work productivity, I think you're going to get some really big advancements towards that. I mean, people are already building VR desktops, not Apple, but other companies are building VR desktops that essentially allow you to... So it's like a giant curved desktop and it has a top and a bottom. You kind of just plug into mm-hmm. it, right? And you're and you're kind of in this virtual reality and it allows you to, to get work done more quickly because you have an infinite number of screens. You can drag and drop things. Like it, it just creates a three-dimensional space from which you can do work as opposed to a two-dimensional space. When you think about that, you take a 2D thing and you make it 3D. You can do a lot more. You can do a lot more at once. And so it's going to allow for better multitasking. Although some people don't believe in multitasking, I think maybe it's kind of possible. I don't know. I don't know what the science is there. But you're going to be more productive <laughs> with with these VR-enhanced workspace technologies. So I think communication, gaming, and productivity are going to be things that we all see as as very cool additions to the um, – uh, to the metaverse VR technology worlds and it'll allow us to, to be more uh, productive in our lives and um, feel like we're, we're leading fuller lives. And I think that's going to also spark some industrial usage, like really cool application, you know, unity software, they're partnering with companies like massive engineering companies to help them mm. d- design planes. Like they'll simulate the design of a plane in their, you know, engine, as opposed to building it in real life. And so that saves you a whole bunch of costs and time. You can run 17,000 different simulations in this gaming engine, in this 3D, you know, RT3D engine, real-time 3D engine, and then you'll get one that's right, and then you can go build it in real life, as opposed to wasting Mm -hmm. money on 17,000 tries in real life. So I think the industrial applications are probably going to be bigger. But you asked me about consumer, and that's what I think consumer is, communication, gaming, and productivity. Okay. Uh Luke, I want to move on, and I want to talk about three more industries before we kind of zoom out and talk macros. Um, first up, AI. We've talked about it a lot ever since the launch of right. Chat GBT3. Uh, now, OpenAI, uh, the company behind Chat GBT3, is it's reportedly looking to raise funds at $29 billion valuation. Does that somewhat financially validate all of this AI hype? And what does that mean for us as AI stock investors? Uh, it definitely validates the hype. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, it was a $14 billion valuation in 2021. Now it's a $29 billion valuation. That's a 100% increase. And that same time span, tech stocks are down 35%. So some tech trends are unstoppable forces. And it turns out that AI is that unstoppable force right now. Um, I believe that in Harvard Business Review wrote that the 
launch of chat GPT-3 was a tipping point, a critical tipping point for the AI revolution and that things are now going to, we just hit the fast forward button and we're about to hit that exponential growth trajectory with AI technologies. Um, what this prompted me to do is it prompted me to go and like look at all the different tools that are being built right now with AI and all the different things you can do. And if you kind of do that deep dive yourself, you'll find there is so much out there that you can use AI to do right now. One of the coolest things for me, which is totally a me thing because I'm a dad of a two-year-old <laughs> and about to be a dad of a, of a newborn baby, is um, – we can use AI to write stories, like children's stories. So mm-hmm. there's this platform out there. Let me find the name of it. Where is it? Where is it? Toy Story Creator. ToyStoryCreator.com. Go check it out. You can literally okay. – you can take a picture of a toy. So let's say my uh, my daughter's obsessed with, um, uh, I don't know, some Barbie doll. And I take a picture of it on my phone. Mm-hmm. It can take the picture of the Barbie doll. It'll recognize what the toy is. And it'll create an entire nighttime story. Like, you know, a 10-page illustrated cool little nighttime story around this toy. Mm-hmm. So I, I can dynamically generate – I don't need to buy any more books. I can dynamically generate <laughs> a new nighttime story every single night based on a different toy that we have at the house. Mm-hmm. I could probably take. I haven't tried. I probably take a picture of a coffee mug. It'll take a create a story about a coffee mug. That might be pretty cool. Um, you know, like that's that's pretty cool. It's so niche. It's so small. But to me, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. As, as a dad, it's awesome. And I think that's when I was looking at all the AI tools out there. That's what we have right now. We have a bunch of really niche tools. That to 80% of people are like, "Eh, so what? But to 20% of people, it's like, this is the coolest thing ever because it really helps them in their lives and their jobs, whatever they do. There's music AI, so you can create songs or beats just like that now, Mm -hmm. using AI to create songs, beats, rhythms, whatever, jams, just instantaneously. There's copy AI, so you can write copy messages, marketing messages, direct marketing messages, uh, ad messages, advertorials. We can write them just like that now with a few little inputs from from a person, the AI I can can run with it. Um, you can uh, let's see some of the other ideas that I have here. Oh, some really cool things with with coding that you can basically now build uh, apps using mm-hmm. kind of like you build Legos. Like the AI, you basically tell the AI what you want to build, and it'll give you chunks of code, and you can just kind of piece them together, and boom, you can create an app. So now any one of us can be coders of an app because of AI. Those are some of the coolest ones is AI applied to programming. That's a really big thing right now. That's a really, really, really big thing. So really excited about what's going on there. There's a, a platform called EcoSnap. It essentially uses AI to help you recycle better. So you can take a picture of an item and it'll tell you, okay, this is compost, recycle, whatever it may be. You take, take the lid off. It'll tell you what to do with that if you want to you know, be as, as green as possible or as good to the environment as possible. Again, very niche. But for some people, that's like, oh, my God, the coolest thing ever. Uh, and so this is just – that's kind of like what I'm seeing in the AI field right now is you're seeing a bunch of niche use cases that when you put it together, it's like, oh, my gosh. Everybody in the world right now could use AI to improve some part of their lives. Mm-hmm. And that's and to me, when, when, when I started putting this list together and started looking at things, I was like, wow, like a light bulb went off. Like it clicked. I was like, we're there. Like it's not something that's going to happen, something that is a year or two years away. No, we're there already. 
There is mm-hmm. already a use case for everyone in the world to use AI in some aspect of their lives, and they'll be happy with it. They'll be happy with the results. That already exists. It's just not discovered. A lot of these platforms are undiscovered. They're flying under the radar because guess what? They launched in 2022, a year mm-hmm. when all we cared about was inflation, a year when mm-hmm. all we cared about was the markets crash, when all we cared about was politics. Like Because of all these negative things in our minds and our heads and the media channels, we completely missed – that dozens upon dozens of really cool AI platforms launched. Nobody cared about it. Well, guess what? Eventually, inflation is going to go away. The markets are going to rebound. And we're going to be like, whoa, that's a cool platform. And you're going to get a flood of users into those platforms. And then, boom, AI is going to go crazy and take over the world. <laughs> and so I, I think that happens over the next 12 months. Like We're in that again. Mm. Tech trigger, peak of inflated expectations, child disillusionment into a U-turn, boom, secular growth. We're right at that U-turn point, fellas. We're right there. There's All the tech is there. It's ready to go. We're just at the races. Someone needs to fire the gun, open the gates, and let the buddies run. That's that's where we are right now. That's that's how I feel about AI. I could not be more excited about some of the AI opportunities uh, in the market and just some of the AI platforms out there now. In my personal life, in my work life, I'm like, I got to use this stuff right now. Like I have to use AI right now because the people who figured out how to use the internet in the 2000s are the Mm -hmm. ones – I mean they became a weapon. It became a commercial Mm -hmm. weapon. Amazon Mm -hmm. weaponized the internet to destroy JCPenney and destroy Sears. People who use AI today are going to weaponize it and they're going to destroy those who don't. And so I refuse to be on the wrong side of history. I refuse to be that analyst or that you know, stock market personality that is like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to use AI. And then in 10 years, that- I get obliterated by somebody that figured out how to use AI to make better stock picks, to have mm-hmm. better analysis, to improve their right, whatever it may be, their communication. Right now, my team is very busy trying to look up all the ad tools out there and figure out which ones we can use to improve mm-hmm. our business, our stock picking, our analysis. Everybody else should be doing that. If you run a business, if you're part of a business, you need to go pound on your boss's table. If you are the boss, pound on your own table. What AI can I use right now? The weapon is here. People figure out how to use it. Well, win over the next 10 years. And those who don't will get left behind miles and miles behind. So you're you're touching actually on the question I have. And uh, so, you know, my background is in educational technology, specifically online learning. And one of the things that I always had to deal with with educators was the idea that, hey, I'm putting all my my courses online. Why does the university need to pay me after I put them all online when they have all that already available? This idea that technology is a threat to us as professionals. And you kind of mentioned it already, that people who don't look at AI, see the power that's behind it and weaponize it to be more advantageous. But is it also a threat? You talk about how it can create music, it can create art, it can create code. Is that a threat to programmers, artists, musicians? And if so, how does that how is that going to impact how we perceive AI and how we use AI, you know, five, ten years down the road? Yeah, um, it's a weapon, like I said. So it's a threat to the person that doesn't have it and a tool for the person that does. Mm-hmm. Think of it as a sword or a gun. If you're the person not holding the sword or the gun in a fight, yeah, yeah, it's a threat. The gun appears mm-hmm. as a threat. If you're the person with the gun or the sword in the fight, it's not a threat. It's a tool. It's a tool mm-hmm. to 
dominate that situation. And that's exactly what AI is. AI is nothing more than a tool. Whether or not it's a threat or an as- a risk or an asset for you mm-hmm. depends on whether or not you figure out how to use it. Go to your education example. T- AI won't make teachers um, antiquated. It, it, it will mm-hmm. not obsolete teachers. Mm-hmm. What it will instead do is teachers will be able to leverage AI, use AI programs to, okay, I teach economics at a university. I can use AI to create dozens upon dozens upon dozens, even hundreds of different lessons plans across all my different classes that will allow me to teach more classes yet still mm-hmm. have input on each one of them because I can now teach this class and that class, this class, all the materials already written. And now I can just come in and, and say, okay, here's my human touch on that. Here's where mm-hmm. I think this is going to happen. Blah, blah, blah. And if you need help, you can come ask me as well. Boom. Then I go to this class and that class. So it's going to allow one teacher who does three classes now to do 15 classes. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. that university only offered 15 classes. There were five teachers that did those 15 classes, three classes per each. One teacher figures out how to use AI, does mm-hmm. all 15 classes, the other four are gone. That's how this that's how this evolves. That's the evolution. Mm-hmm. Somebody figures out how to use it, mass produce whatever the heck they're doing, and then they monopolize that industry or monopolize that, that category, that industry, whatever the heck they're in. And then the people that don't figure out how to use it become JCPenney's or Sears. Now, mm-hmm. even when JCPenney's and Sears got antiquated, that didn't mean all those people lost their jobs. They went to, simply just went to go work for Amazon. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's what I'm talking about. Is there, it's not going to be a job destruction. It's going to be a job reshifting. And okay. those that figure out how to use AI are going to simply dominate whole industries and they're going to kill companies. And the people that work for those companies are just going to simply reshift and work for the, the, um, the companies that are now dominating that industry. And so that, that's how I view AI. Yes, is it a threat? Absolutely. So was the internet. So was the steamboat. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the steam engine. So every single major technological revolution of the past 5,000 years, the wheel, fire, it was a threat. Mm-hmm. But it ultimately was a weapon for progress more than it was a threat to the status quo. And so that AI is just that. This time is not different. People are going to figure out how to use AI to make a more productive, efficient society that ultimately raises the standard of living for everybody in society. And that's really all every revolution, technological revolution has done in the past 5,000 years. Every big tech revolution, all it does is elevate the standard of living for people. The internet made it so we can all buy things pretty much instantly. We can all watch things pretty much instantly. We can all consume media almost instantly. We can all we can work from home. We can uh, work across the country. You're in Baltimore. I'm in San Diego. This would not be impossible without the internet. It raised our standard of living. That's all AI is going to do. So it might seem big and scary right now, but I think at the end of the day, all it's going to do is raise the standard of living for everybody in society while simultaneously making fortunes for those that figure out how to weaponize it to to dominate trillion-dollar industries potentially. Hmm. And that's why, side note, I'm really excited about Microsoft because they're way ahead of the curve here. Investment in open AI. I mean, we all see how ChatGPT could be the new Google. We all Mm -hmm. see that. Yeah, Microsoft is reportedly planning on integrating ChatGPT technology into Bing and creating some super search engine. I don't think that means it destroys Google. Google's not stupid here. Alphabet's not dumb. They're working on their mm-hmm. own AI stuff. It's going to be a pretty interesting two-horse race here. But nonetheless, what I'm looking for in companies right now are companies that are figuring out how to use AI to get ahead. And those that aren't even thinking about it are already behind. 
So that's why I, I'm looking for companies trying to figure out how to use AI. Okay. Uh, Moving on uh, to our second topic, I wanted to talk about. Uh, I want to talk about consumer media platforms. Uh, I know that you're a, you're a big fan of TikTok. I'm a big fan of TikTok. Uh, you see short term video as the future, um, but TikTok keeps getting banned in certain places. Uh, this morning, mm-hmm. I read that TikTok was just banned on government devices in Ohio and New Jersey. You know, are these bans a deal breaker for TikTok, and are they an opportunity for other apps like Snap and Meta? Uh, yes. So I think uh, TikTok's not done, but I think TikTok's ascent is over. TikTok rose in popularity uh, before the pandemic, but then really kind of had that parabolic growth during the pandemic when timing just worked out wonderfully for them. They went mainstream in America uh, at the same time that we all got locked down in our homes. So really the trigger (laughs) for massive adoption of TikTok in the United States was the pandemic. And it's been on a hot run ever since, but I think we've peaked. I think the growth trajectory, growth rates of TikTok have peaked and now we're kind of coming down and this is a platform that is now going to cool off over the next few years. And a few reasons for that is one, I think that the government stuff matters. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, if it were just government bans, I wouldn't care. I mean, it's banned on a government device. You know, most government employees have two phones, the government phone and the one they have for for personal use. Mm -hmm. So just because it's banned on a government device doesn't mean that person is not using TikTok. They're probably using it on their personal device. So if it were just the bans, I wouldn't care. But it's not just the bans. The bans are being written about everywhere. Turn on Fox News. Even, you know, one thing that both the left and the right can agree on right now Mm -hmm. is that TikTok is sketchy. Like Mm -hmm. that... CNN will report the same thing about TikTok as Fox News. And they're Mm -hmm. both saying, we don't really know what's going on here. The Chinese are probably surveilling it. Governments are saying it's not okay to use. Maybe don't use it. Mm -hmm. Enough people watch that stuff on both sides of the political aisle and boom, enough people stop using the app. And not to mention, I mean, these are probably, you know, what's the demographic of CNN and Fox News? I mean, obviously different graphics, but the age demographic is the same. It's, mm-hmm. it's 40 to 60, 40 to 70, 40 to 80. Those, mm-hmm. That generation has kids. Those kids use TikTok and Snap. So what happens? They tell their kids, no more TikTok. Kids are like, what the heck? You can't do that. I can't. I'll delete it from your phone. Gets deleted from their phone. Boom, those kids go to Snap. That's mm-hmm. the progress for me. That's the evolution okay. I'm working through in my head. That I think everything that's going on right now simply sets the stage for usage of Snapchat, and Instagram reels to soar over the next two years. Mm-hmm. I think that, again, the ascent of TikTok really hurt those platforms. I think now that it, d- it descends and it cools off, that's going to be an engagement tailwind for Snap. It's going to be an engagement tailwind for um, for uh, uh, Instagram reels. Um, Pinterest, a little bit, not really. Twitter, not so much. This is short form video to short form video. So short form video is Snap. Short form video is Instagram Reels. I think those two, you know, Snap is the stock. Meta is the stock. I think those two stocks benefit the most from what's going on with TikTok right now. Because again, it's not just government bans, it's government bans. And then all of the collateral effects that happen with those bans. So I think, again, that's a positive for for Snap and, and Meta. And on the Snap note, you know, I remember, you know, being in high school and college and Snap was like everything, like everybody used Snap. And then, you know, I've I've grown older, become a a family man, become a dad and moved to suburbia. Um, And I don't I don't even I haven't opened Snapchat on my phone in probably two or three years. Uh, (laughs) But when I was on 
actually, the most recent flight to Baltimore when I flew out there. Um, this is going to sound a little weird, but whatever. I was I was sitting <laughs> next to a, to a high school kid and his mom, and the kid on you know not in the air, but before we were taken off, and then once we landed, before we were taken off, he was glued to Snapchat and was just mm-hmm. like, I mean, the stuff he it was just. He would not put his phone down, was messaging everybody every two seconds, was using Snap Maps. It was like the quintessential power user of Snap. And then as soon as he landed, turned his phone on, didn't check anything else, and just went to Snap and just power use Snap until we all deplaned. And mm-hmm. I saw that and I was like, okay, one example is not data, right? That's, that, that's not a data point for a generation. Mm-hmm. But but it certainly gave me confirmation to an extent that there is young people still use Snapchat a lot. Snapchat mm-hmm. is the most you know all the data out there says it. When you can read mm-hmm. any sort of uh, the Piper Jaffray uh, surveys of, of teens, whatever data metric you want to find, the data will show you that Snapchat is the most used app among teens. But I don't interact with the teen demographic all that much. So mm-hmm. I don't really have a physical touch point there. It was nice to see in, in reality that indeed power usage of Snapchat among teens is very high and strong right now. So in any event, I'm pretty bullish on Snap stock here. I think that the TikTok uh, ban is bans uh, will create some big tailwinds, engagement tailwinds for the platform in 2023. I think the digital ad backdrop has been weak but well improved in 2023. The outlook for it will improve in 2023 as the economy braces for a soft landing. We don't get this big recession that everyone's fearing. Um, I think 2024 will be a massive growth year for the company. And therefore, stocks tend to act 12 months in advance of fundamentals. I think the stock rebounds strongly here in 2023. Meta stock, I think, also benefits from this. More complicated growth dynamics over there, so I'm not as bullish on uh, Meta as I am on Snap. I think Pinterest also benefits from this. The digital ad backdrop improving will significantly push up a lot of these things. And I even think Alphabet stock's gonna gonna benefit from this because YouTube, believe it or not, YouTube Shorts is a pretty big competitor mm-hmm. of TikTok. So if YouTube Shorts gets some engagement tailwinds from the TikTok bans, then boom, that's a, that's a tailwind for that business. I mean, YouTube's ad business has been one of the biggest growth drivers of at, at Google at Alphabet mm-hmm. for a long time. And very recently, that growth driver just stopped. I mean, YouTube ad business went negative. So they need that to reaccelerate, and I think it will. And once it does, I think the stock can do a lot better. So I broadly think the whole digital ad stock landscape, it's a pretty good place to go bottom fishing right now. I think there's some really good bargains over there. Look at Alphabet stocks, like 16 times earnings. That's mm-hmm. dirt cheap for a company of that quality. There's a lot of cross-pollination when we're talking about when we're talking about snap we're talking about reels we're talking about youtube shorts we're talking about tiktok a lot of the same videos are getting just repurposed by creators into just shoving them out on all of these platforms is it are we going to see equal growth in all of these at the same time or do you see a winner coming out at the end each platform i think what you have to ask yourself is you have to ask okay does the user have a specific need for each platform? Mm-hmm. Well, if the answer is yes, I think that platform can succeed in an environment of multiple platforms. Because I don't think there is going to, there, there may be way in the future, but looking out five years, I don't see a situation where in all of these apps get consolidated into one and there's one app for everything, one social media mm-hmm. app, for everything. I think people like having Twitter to communicate short thoughts and, and 
actually more more likely these days is uh, to consume news and to consume little tidbits of information. That's a fundamentally distinct use case than Snapchat, which people are using mostly for short visual, not even visual, just short, quick, instant, ephemeral communication. That's mm-hmm. a very clear value prop. No one else is encroaching on that territory. Mm-hmm. And that's a very distinct use case from Instagram, which is sharing photos of my life and checking in on other people's lives and what they're doing and stories and all that stuff, which is of itself a very distinct use case from Pinterest, which is going on there to find inspiration for a, a DIY home project or clothing or workouts. It's inspiration to do something, which itself is a very distinct use case from TikTok, which is we go on there to just consume media boom 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 in 30 second bits uh kind of like a mobile tv these are all distinct they can all succeed side by side i don't see why they can't because we use them for different things it's like a saw and a hammer maybe has i don't maybe there is a tool out there that that, that's a saw and hammer in one but that just doesn't make Mm -hmm. sense home people says a lot of saws and they sell a lot of hammers and they sell Mm -hmm. a lot of screwdrivers so I think from that perspective, people will use a lot of Snapchat, use a lot of uh, Instagram, and use a lot of Twitter, use a lot of Pinterest. They'll use them. They'll continue to use them side by side because I think what's going to continue to go up is digital engagement. And then mm-hmm. tying this all back to next gen digital reality, which you talked about earlier, I think the platforms. I think they all will succeed side by side. But the ones that will get ahead in this race that will succeed the most will be the ones that figure out how to tap into next-gen digital reality technologies to augment their experiences in a way that the other platforms cannot. I think Snap is really succeeding on that. Snap with their their AR filters, that's a really, 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 really cool technology. It's not getting the love it deserves right now because the advertising backdrop is weak. But when that advertising backdrop comes back, Snap's AR advertising platform is ridiculously good. When you have the try on the the Gucci uh, glasses, the Chanel glasses, or the try on the Under Armour pants or whatever it may be, that is ridiculously cool technology. That's the next generation of advertising. Snap's on it. So I really like Snap for that. I think that a lot of these other companies are really trying to figure out Pinterest. Is trying to, how do we use AR technology to augment the the social shopping experience, the social digital shopping experience? So I really like to see what these companies are doing with AR, XR, VR to create that next leg of growth, of engagement growth for their platforms. Right now, to me, Snap is the leader in that. Pinterest is a close second. Meta is trying to do some weird stuff with the metaverse. I think their time would be much better spent just trying to figure out how to take that and apply it to Facebook and Instagram and make Facebook mm-hmm. and Instagram more compelling. But right now, they're mm-hmm. not doing that. So there might be a, a pivot in there. I don't know. But for right now, I think Snap and Pinterest are the leaders at leveraging AR, XR, VR technologies to enhance user experience and create that next level of growth of the platform. Okay. Uh, last industry I want to touch on before we go to the macro outlook. Um, and again, this conversation would not be complete without talking about electric vehicles and Tesla. Uh, you were bearish on Tesla stock throughout 2022. Um, but early this year, you said it was time to buy. And indeed, the stock has popped 20% from the lows. Still, though, I'm reading reports about price cuts and demand erosion. So what should we do with Tesla stock here? And more broadly, what's the outlook for EV stocks in 2023? Right. So quickly, the bull thesis on Tesla stock that, that you know, we were kind of uh, very brief on was 
the stock is is cheap now. At, at its bottom, it was around 21 times forward earnings for a company that's probably going to grow 20 25% per year over the next at least five years, if not longer. That's a very attractive profile. 20 times for 20% plus growth, you got to buy that. So the valuation was dirt cheap. And then two, it was just really oversold. The RSI was plunging below 20. I mean, it was as oversold as it has ever been. It was just due for a short-term rebound, relief bounce from those lows. So that was why we got bullish on it. Cheap valuation, oversold. So oversold and undervalued, boom, you had that bounce and I've had that bounce and now we're normalizing at higher levels. Do we like Tesla stock going forward? Yes, I still think it's cheap. I don't think it's going to get that big short-term bounce anymore because I already got that from the oversold levels, but it's still an undervalued asset. It's still, what is it right now? Let me get a forward multiple for you. Um, it's still pretty cheap. Do, 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 do. Yeah, so it's still 23 and a half times forward earnings uh, for, again, a company that's going to grow 25% per year at least over the next five years. Um, so that that's still a very attractive growth, prowl, growth um, profile. So if, if that multiple goes up to 27, 28, 29, 30, that starts to feel like fair valuation. That still is another 20, 30, 40% of second year. So I do like it from an undervalued perspective. But zooming out to the broader EV sector, I think you just have to be bullish on other EV stocks more than you're bullish on Tesla. Tesla is cheap. Mm. It's got good upside. But the reason it became cheap is because it's just losing market share in the global EV market on a trillion to one basis. Tesla's EV market share of the global EV market peaked in 2020 at around 19%. Now it's come all the way down to 13%. And everybody and their best friend is launching an electric vehicle these days. Rivian's ramping production like crazy. Lucid's ramping production like crazy. Um, BMW's electrifying everything. Uh, Mercedes is electrifying everything. Ford is electrifying everything. GM is electrifying everything. Now, remember like two or three years back when Tesla was going to be first to market with an electric truck, that Cybertruck? Yeah, the Cybertruck yeah. still has it launched. Yeah, we got the <laughs> R1T out there. We got an electric Ford. We got an electric GM. We got, mm-hmm. I mean, like, so now they're almost behind the curve a little bit. So you have to understand the cheapness in Tesla stock is somewhat warranted. The company was a first mover with a big advantage. That has lost that advantage almost entirely. And so I do like Tesla stock because I feel it is undervalued. But if you're looking for big gains in the EV space, I don't think they come from Tesla anymore. They're going to come from the other companies that are making inroads in this industry that are stealing the market share from Tesla. And obviously, you know, I'm very bullish on Rivian, very bullish on Lucid. I think Fisker is going to have a big year. So I, I love EV stocks for 2023. I think the outlook is very favorable. Um, and I think Tesla stock can bounce back, but it's not my favorite play in the EV uh, sector right now. All right. Uh, real quick then, just before we uh, get to our fan questions, just let's zoom out and look at the macros. You're, I know you're bullish on the macros. Uh, you think stocks mm-hmm. are going to soar this year. At least you did when we talked last week. Uh, do you still feel this way a week later? Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Aaron. all the data, all the incoming data is just screaming soft landing. Um, there's this idea out there that you need a deep recession to kill inflation. And you don't. You, you, you really don't. You don't need the labor market to get destroyed in order for inflation to get crushed. Most of the time you do, but not all the time. There have been three times since 1950 when inflation came from well above average levels to below average levels without the labor market getting destroyed. Three different times. The early 1950s, the mid-1980s, 
um, and the early 2010s, that we had massive disinflation in those three periods without any labor market destruction. It's possible. And I think that's exactly what we're getting right now. Every single metric, every single one shows prices crashing. Mannheim used vehicle report for December, minus 15% year over year on used car prices. That's the biggest drop on record. Today, we just got the small business report from December. That showed a huge uh, fall in the prices paid index. ISM services, huge collapse in the prices paid um, uh, gauge. Uh, ISM manufacturing, huge decline in the prices paid gauge. And if you look at those surveys, the ISM manufacturing, ISM uh, services, you look at those those prices paid gauges, that's consistent. The drops they're seeing is consi- are consistent with 2 to 3% inflation by the end of the year. And we are seeing rapid disinflation. Home prices are starting to roll over. Rents are coming down. We're even seeing food prices decelerate and oil can't break 75. I mean, it's in that 70, 75 range. Natural gas prices have completely rolled over. I mean, when you look at uh, one of the reasons that oil disinflation of 2022 didn't really translate into massive disinflation uh, broadly is because natural gas prices remain stubbornly high. But now natural gas prices have come all the way back to below where they were before the invasion of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So now gas is collapsing. I mean, everything's collapsing. Prices are completely in free fall right now. We are experiencing massive disinflation, yet the labor market added 250,000 jobs in December. We and wage wage inflation came down significantly. Wage growth came down significantly. I mean, the data is pretty clear here. Inflation is crashing without any help from the labor market. <laughs> That's super bullish. That mm-hmm. that that is a soft uh, that is a soft landing case. That the data today <laughs> supports the idea we're going to get a soft economic landing. Um, all we need now is for the Fed to embrace it. Now the Fed's mm-hmm. not going to embrace it with their speech. They're going to continue to talk, 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 hawkish as can be because that's their job. Mm-hmm. But I think they're just going to hike in February and then embrace the soft landing by not hiking anymore. Their rate hikes are working. They're driving down inflation. They stay flat for the rest of the year. Inflation comes down. Economy restabilizes. Stocks boom. So I'm very bullish on the backdrop for stocks going into 2023. Uh, we're already six days in, six trading days into 2023. Um, well, here's here's the data actually, uh, and I ran it yesterday. So as of yesterday on Monday, January 9th. The S&P 500 at one point was up more than 2% through the first five trading days of 2023. Now, you might be saying a big fat, so what? But there is a big so what here. The so what here is that as goes January, so goes the rest of the year. And specifically, as go the first five trading days, so goes the rest of the year. Now, I ran this analysis all the way back to 1935. When the S&P 500 rallies more than 2% in the first five trading days of the year, it almost always finishes that full year high. And by almost always, I mean 95% of the time. There have been 17 years since 1935 when the S&P 500 rose more than 2% in the first five trading days of the year. 16 of those 17 years Stocks finished the full year higher with an average return of almost 20%. 16 of the 17 years. But let's whittle it down even further to get a bit more bullish. 2023 isn't just a regular year, right? That's because we had 2022, which was an awful year. So Mm. more specifically, let's look at the subset of data that is 
when the S&P 500 rallies more than 2% in the first five days of the year and the market fell in the previous year. So it's not a continuation rally in January. Mm -hmm. It's a rebound rally in January. Mm -hmm. That has happened nine times since 1935. All mm-hmm. nine times, nine out of nine, 100% of the time, stocks finished the year higher with an average return of almost 25%. So the dynamics we witnessed in the first five trading days of the year, up 2%, five trading days after a bad year, that's happened nine times in history All nine times, stocks finish the year higher. So it's not just the macroeconomic data. It's not just the Fed. It's not just the fact that we're down big that gets me bullish. The market's kind of already sniffing it out. The Mm. fact that we're rallying big here in early 2023 after a really bad 2022, the historical precedent for that is we boom the rest of the year. So I like what I'm seeing. I'm getting pretty bullish. We're probably going to do another big buying spree here in January. We did a big one in November. Probably going to do another big one here in January. And that's going to be us locked and loaded for the year. And I think we're going to be ready to go. Our portfolio is going to boom. (laughs) All right. Great outlook for 2023. Uh, And that covers all our topics. Uh, Definitely have some fan questions I want to get to real quick. Uh, CS Low, any thoughts on this no rate cuts sentiment from Fed officials, and does it change your view on a sooner Fed pause? Yeah, listen, we don't want rate cuts. That, that's, I think that's something that yeah. we have to really get get clear on. Um, and I don't want rate cuts. Uh, mm-hmm. When the Fed, there's, there's two types of Fed moves. I don't want to call it pivot, moves. The first is a Fed pause, and the second is a Fed pivot. Fed pauses are bullish. Fed pivots are bearish. Mm-hmm. Fed pauses are when the Fed goes from hiking rates to not hiking rates. Mm-hmm. And that's simply them acknowledging that, okay, our rate hikes have done the job. We don't need to hike anymore. Inflation's coming down. Um, but it also doesn't mean the economy's collapsing. If the economy is collapsing, you'd be cutting rates. So the, a rate pause is acknowledgement that the economy is slowing and that inflation is falling which means that the economy can now stabilize because the Fed is not hiking rates anymore. So Fed pauses are systematically bullish for the stock market. Every time the Fed pauses, stocks rally. The S&P usually rips 20%. The Nasdaq usually rips 30%. That's typically what happens when the Fed pauses a rate high campaign. But when the Fed cuts and the Fed does an actual pivot and they go, so normally the Fed hikes, they pause, and then they cut. When those Mm. cuts start, that historically is not very bullish for stocks. Sometimes stocks rally on cuts. But most of the time, stocks don't rally on cuts. They crash on cuts because you have to understand what is a rate cut? What is the Fed acknowledging when they cut rates? They're acknowledging that the economy cannot withstand these rates and we need to reduce them in order to save the economy from collapsing. That means the economy is in a very weak position and it's a vote of – it's the opposite of a vote of confidence from the Fed. It's basically the Fed saying we don't have confidence at all in the economy, so we have to cut rates to save its life. Um, typically, that that's not a very good messaging. That means we're kind of in trouble town. So we cuts are, are not systematically bullish. Pauses are. So I think the most bullish outcome here is we get a rate pause in February. We get one last hike and then no more hikes the rest of the year, but no cuts either. And we just mm. stay flat at that rate for 12 months. 
That's a situation where stocks rally big into 2024. And then maybe the Fed starts cutting in 2024. But I, I don't really know. I'm not going to look out that far. I think if the Fed stops in early 23 and then starts cutting by summer 23, that means something's gone terribly wrong in the economy. Mm. And that probably means stocks are moving lower at that point in time. So the Fed is saying we're going to raise rates and then we're just going to keep them high. I, I think you got to listen to them. I think you got to believe them. They're going to raise rates and keep them high. And that's actually bullish for the stock market. Bulls are rooting for cuts and I don't get why. Cuts are not good. <laughs> we want to pause. We want to pause. That's all we want is a pause. Well, a pause, let the hikes that we've done work their way through the economy via lag effects let inflation come down, let the economy restabilize, and then let's reassess in 24. But let's pause in 23 and rally. And I think that's where we get a pause and rally. Okay. Uh, next question from Richie Petruziello. Uh, what are your top five picks for high growth in the tech sector? Ooh, I can't give you a, a top five. I think that would be unfair to my my uh, paid subscribers and my services. Um, but what I can say is I'll just rattle off a few names that I really like. I mean, obviously, we know that I just like the high growth sector in general for 2023. Mm -hmm. um, 2022 was a terrible year for high growth. 2023 will be an awesome year. It's a big rebound year because all the inputs of the economic model have shifted. Rate hikes become a rate pause. Rising yields become falling yields. Uh, contracting economy becomes an expand, not a contracting, but a slowing economy becomes an improving economy. So I think as all those kind of inputs shift and the outcomes will shift as well. So high growth stocks got crashed. Uh, high growth stocks will soar. Uh, what stocks are like? I mean, we talked about kind of the, the genres that I really like doing mm -hmm. in 2023. AI. I love AI stocks. I think there are some certain high growth AI stocks that are really interesting uh, to buy for 2023. Some AI software stocks. I think that's that's a really good place to be. Um, I like software stocks just in general, enterprise software stocks. Talking about mm -hmm. names like Datadog, names like Atlassian, names like Zscaler. I think these are very, they're very high growth companies that are simultaneously very profitable and strong cash flow producing companies. These are companies with 80% gross margins, the potential for 40 or 50% free cash flow margins. I mean, they just print cash or have the potential to print cash. And so these are stocks I think people will pile into and risk sentiments get a little bit better. So I really like the, the software sector. Um, and I think energy continues to be a theme in 2023, but that the focus shifts toward, towards clean energy and clean energy mm -hmm. projects. I think energy storage, I think electric vehicles, I think solar, I think those stocks can do hydrogen. I think those stocks can do very well in 2023 with a bunch of legal tailwinds at their back. I'm really excited about energy storage stocks because of the investment tax credit, right? You know, the mm -hmm. ITC, the first ever investment tax credit for standalone energy storage was, it was issued in 2022. That is a backdrop against which the energy storage boom can really accelerate because the solar boom in the 2010s got started when Obama administration introduced in 2012 an investment tax credit for solar projects, standalone solar projects. That's what really kickstarted the solar boom. So I think the introduction of a brand new standalone energy storage IGC in 2022 is the catalyst which will spark a massive ESS boom in, in the 2020s. So very bullish on those stocks going into 2023. Or we're already in 23, so in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, next question from Luis Matarazzo. Is it safe to invest money in desktop metal, Ginkgo Bioworks Holdings, Matterport, Open Door? I'm asking this because their prices are under $5. Does this mean that they're going to go bankrupt soon? 
Um, yeah, so I would say the under five dollar thing is not much. To, I think a lot of companies are trading uh, their stocks are trading under five dollars for reasons that are absolutely silly, and I think a lot of the companies you listed are that. So I wouldn't pay too much attention to that. Uh, bankruptcy concerns with respect to those companies. Open Door is the only one that I think has uh, real bankruptcy concerns, and that's because they're in a very capital intense business, and the mm. I mean, they own a lot of assets that they have to unload, and they have a lot of debt too. So bankruptcy there is is a risk, and that's that's an independent thing we, we should talk about. But with respect to all the other ones, Desktop Metal, Ginkgo, um, uh, what was another one listed? Uh, Matterport. Matterport. These are uh, very well capitalized. These are very well capitalized companies that have hundreds of billions of dollars on hundreds of millions of dollars on the balance sheet with not. They, they have a uh, runway. So runway is what we, we take the amount of cash on the balance sheet and we divide it by how much cash they're burning every quarter. These are companies that have multi-year runways. And so I don't think they're cash strapped. They are not cash strapped and I don't think there are any liquidity risks there. So I don't think bankruptcy risks with those companies are high at all. I think they're below 2% on all of them. So I, I would not be terribly concerned about bankruptcy with those stocks. Now with Open Door, again, bankruptcy risks are very real, but we've talked about it ad nauseum on this podcast. I think that they will figure out a way to navigate through this turbulent housing market without causing a liquidity crisis. And if they do, there'll be a huge vote of confidence from the market in their ability to essentially withstand any sort of market. And that'll cause the stock to, to go absolutely blockbusters. But at this point, it's a very high risk, high reward play. So long story short, uh, the long answer short to your question is, I do not believe bankruptcy risks are very real for Matterport, Desktop Metal, Ginkgo Bioworks. They are almost zero for Ginkgo Bioworks. Ginkgo Bioworks has a ton mm. of cash. Um and uh do 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 what was the other one? That's not metal matterport can go and open door. Okay, so then uh, open door. Yeah. And open door. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe we already talked about that. So that's the long answer <laughs> short to that question. All right. Uh question from one. Uh what's your take on Canoe's finances? They have many firm orders from big names, but will they have the funds and ability to deliver? Can the CEO steer the company to survive and prosper? Yeah, I mean, that's always been the thing with them. That's one of the reasons that so we did a house clean of our portfolio and um, we got rid of some things that we didn't think were, were going to have a bounce back. And one of the ones we kept was, was Canoe. And we kept Canoe because, yes, and look at the balance sheet and it's like, oh my God, they're going to run out of cash any day now. But then, <laughs> but then two things. One, you brought up in the question, they have all these massive orders, including a massive order from Walmart. Walmart mm. wouldn't place that massive order. They placed that a couple months ago. They wouldn't place that massive order on a company they thought was going to go bankrupt and defunct. Right? I mean, they placed that massive order. I, I think that's a big backstop. I think Walmart can and will save the day if need be. So I have mm -hmm. a lot of faith that not only do they have firm orders, but one of those orders is from the world's largest, second largest, I guess now, retailer in Walmart, and Walmart's not gonna let them go under. So I think Walmart is a big backstop here. That's one of the reasons we kept it. And then two, the CEO just bought $5 million with the shares. Mm -hmm. Why would you buy $5 million? You're the CEO of the company. You know more about what's mm -hmm. going on about your cash balances, about your manufacturing ramps, about your, your your commercial partnerships, than anybody else in the world. Why would you buy five million dollars worth of your own stock if you thought if you thought the company was going to go bankrupt? Mm -hmm. Makes no sense. Makes absolutely no sense. So, I think Canoe's going to make it, 
And mm-hmm. if they do make it, the stock's going to go absolutely crazy from here. Now, again, like I said, my my uh, my speculative confidence comes from the fact that Walmart is is a big customer. That's not going to let them go under, and that the CEO bought five million dollars worth of shares. Again, you're not going to buy it. Five, and that's maybe for some people it's chunk change, but for most people it's not <laughs> chunk change. You're not going to buy five million dollars worth of your company's stock if you thought your company was going to zero. He knows something or sees something that's maybe not reported. I don't know. But I have faith that Canoe is going to make it, live to see another day. And as a result, they're going to deliver a lot of vans, delivery vans, to Walmart. And I think within three, four, five years, most of Walmart's vans will be Canoe cars. And at that point in time, Canoe stock is going to be well above 20, 30 bucks. So I, I like this one here. I do. It's risky. It's risky as can be. But I like it. I do like it. <laughs> All right. And our last question from Shane Johnson, a.k.a. The Cork Dork. Hi, Luke. I know you're bullish on some green energy plays like Fluence and STEM. What about Bloom Energy? Do you like their prospects in 2023 as well? Yeah, great question. Great question. Uh, Bloom is a solid company. I like Bloom going into 2023. I, I think Bloom is, I mean, it's kind of simultaneously a play on the cross of hydrogen energy storage. And I like that because I like both those industries. So it's kind of like this hybrid. Um, I think the the CEO there is, is pretty sharp. Uh, I think the management team is it, it's pretty good. Uh, their growth trajectory looks very good. Their margins are starting to improve. Um, valuation is very reasonable. So I, I do like Bloom. I like Bloom a lot in 2023. It, it's had a big run in the second half of 22, and I think that can continue. I think it's got a lot of momentum going into 23. All right. Well, that wraps our questions and all our topics and great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors as always. Luke, do you have any last words before we wrap? Uh, I'm just checking in on the time here. It looks like we've got an hour 20 here. Man, that's a, that's a podcast. I, th- I think this might be the longest one we've done. It's because we started but, talking uh, about AI. AI. It's, it's because yeah. we started talking about AI. You get me going on AI, and I will, I'll go for hours on that stuff, man. It is, it is the ultimate weapon of the 2020s. And if you don't figure out how to use it, you're going to get left behind. But if you do figure out how to use it, you can dominate whatever the heck you want to dominate. You know, if you want to dominate uh, basketball, like basketball coaching, basketball drills, basketball, just basketball itself, you can probably use AI. I, I bet within a year we're going to have some platform where I can go out on the basketball court. I can put up a little camera and, I'll, and, I'll, and it'll film me and I'll shoot a shot and I'll shoot my jumper. And the AI will analyze and it'll tell me everything I'm doing wrong and it will give me I was going to say that's impossible because you're perfect at shooting that basketball. Okay. Yeah. I mean my, my form is it's pretty tight. But yeah. it could. It's not, it's not Steph Curry. I'm not Steph Curry over here. But it's going to give me all the critiques I need. Boom! I listen to that, and bam! You know what? I'll be a 40, 50 percent three point shooter. You know, if I keep practicing and listening to that AI, that's the kind of stuff that's going to happen. So really, AI is going to be applied to everything. I'm I'm continuing to go on. Now we're at an hour twenty five. All righty, guys. I'm going to stop. AI is a powerful tool. Aaron, take us out. Take us home. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comment section. We love to hear any feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover. And as always, see if we can answer any of your burning questions. As always, please don't forget to like and subscribe. And we will see uh, and we'll see you next week. Until then, bye all.